0: I love pizza. I love the mozzarella stretching from my mouth to the slice. I love the charred pullowy base of a Neapolitan style pizza and the satisfying crunch of the thin crust. From the classic taste of a margarita to more innovative toppings that make Italians weep. I love them all. But pizza is also the greatest enemy imaginable for a type 1 diabetic. While most foods require diabetics to inject a single dose of fast-acting insulin to combat the intake of carbohydrates, the high fat content in pizza means that carbs are held in your stomach and released over an extended period, meaning that an immediate rush of insulin could result in first plummeting, then rocketing blood sugar levels. From the day I was diagnosed at age 10, pediatricians reminded me of the complications that could result from poor blood sugar management amputated feet, blindness, and miscarriages hung over me like a cipher until a wonderful specialist named Professor Benici arrived. He was a sports car driving, opera singing, hairy-chested Italian, and he uttered the most wonderful words. If you want a pizza, eat a pizza. Professor Benici helped me to figure out a complex multi-injection procedure that would allow me to cope with this challenging food if I chose to eat it. With this in mind, it makes sense that I've had a complex relationship to food. What I eat and how I deal with what I eat has a direct relationship to some horrifying health outcomes. Why then, do so many women around me experience more guilt, judgment and anxiety over food than I ever have? Why are perfectly healthy people placing more focus on their bodies and someone with a potentially life-threatening chronic disease. Welcome to Debatable, the podcast about the big, messy questions of our time. In today's episode, I went on a journey of discovery, because there are two contradictory sets of ideas that I haven't been able to reconcile. The first is the public health messaging about fat – We are told that if your BMI is over 25, you are at risk of type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, cancer, strokes and depression. Shows like The Biggest Loser, How to Look Good Naked and Three Fat Brides in a Thin Dress tell us that being fat is a miserable and desirable experience. By contrast, we have a body positive and fat liberation movement. whose messaging tells us you can be big and beautiful, you can be healthy at any size, that you should love your body, and that our obsession with thinness is tied up with mental illness, capitalist greed, racism and sexism. And warnings from the British government that excess fat can increase your chances of contracting the coronavirus have been criticised by activists who argue that fat people are being used as scapegoats for underlying social problems. When I started my research, I was both enticed by and sceptical of both these ideologies, So I decided to speak to a representative of the fat liberation movement, a journalist who argues that the fat liberation message is dangerous, and a medical doctor who specializes in obesity studies. Just so you know, I will be interrupting this first interview here and there to clarify some terms and concepts you may not be familiar with. My name is
1: Jackie. I am a South African, currently living in Brooklyn.
0: I moved here
1: for grad school, and now I work in Broadway theater education.
0: You describe yourself as being part of the Fat Liberation movement. Can you explain what that means?
1: Sure. So I should start by saying that this movement really feels to me like an online and organic grassroots movement. There certainly is a locus of organizers from the 70s who began it, but my knowledge is really based from online bloggers and incredible online activists and academics I'm really indebted to writers and poets for teaching me about this movement. So it's people like Sabrina Strings and Roxane Gay and Sonia Renee Taylor and Linda Bacon and the blogger called Your Fat Friends. I have a whole list of people whose shoulders I'm standing on here. I'm not claiming to be a leader of this movement. I'm just human going about my life who believes this. So the movement itself, It really believes that no one should be discriminated against because of their size. There's so much anti-fat bias in the world, and we're really trying to shift that to remove connotations of fat as ugly or lazy or unhealthy, and also remove the moralizing that's placed on food. Food is no good food or bad food. Really, food is just food. It's nutrition. It fuels our bodies. And fat liberation can encompass self-love, body positivity, finding cute coding, feeling good about yourself. But I really see it as an intersectional justice issue because fat people face issues in so many spheres, in the medical sphere, in the workplace, in public space, and our experiences are shaped by these broader issues in society. So fat phobia intersects with racism and classism and capitalism. And until we tackle each of those issues, no one is able to live a liberated life. So I see it as a really intersectional issue towards justice as a whole.
0: So on this podcast, I'm quite interested in where opinions come from and how different opinions fit together. Could you talk about yourself in terms of different things that you believe, your kind of ideological background?
1: I see myself as a queer intersectional feminist. I grew up Jewish and kind of aligned most with progressive or reconstructionist Judaism. And I guess you could call me a leftist, like a little s socialist, definitely towards the left end of the spectrum. And I guess the is that come with that.
0: And if you think back, what kind of beliefs did you have about body image and fat growing up and in your childhood?
1: I definitely grew up in a home where the women were always dieting. We were always trying to shrink ourselves. No one ever told me this overtly, but I believed that my fatness would hinder my success. I thrived academically and musically and artistically and socially, but I still believed that I was undeserving of celebrating my accomplishments and that I was undeserving of love and that my only way to live my real life was once I was thin.
0: When did you discover this new way of thinking about things and what led you to become a part of it?
1: So I was doing an undergrad course in medical anthropology. We had to experience something new, a new physical sensation, and then write about it for a paper. And I investigated some of the diet culture stuff I had grown up in as part of that project. And during research, I came across a number of Tumblr blogs.
0: For those who don't know, Tumblr is a blogging and social networking website that was particularly popular in the early to mid-2010s and is often associated with users with socially progressive views.
1: Um, I always joke about how Tumblr saved my life, because really it introduced me to this world of concurrently fat positivity and feminism. And these movements, these bloggers, basically gave me another narrative, that I had the option to not hate myself. It was a total shift in mindset. I could read stories from other folks that deeply resonated. I was like, oh, I could have written this story. These writers and activists showed me that I could wear clothes that I actually like. I didn't have to just be in clothing that flattered me or made me look skinnier or hide my body. Those tips and tricks, like just wear black, don't fool anyone. You're still a fat person wearing black, you know? Like, they taught me about loving fashion that I really wanted and finding joy in food and actually listening to what my body wanted and the intuitive eating instead of moralizing food as good or bad. And I'm really thankful to the nutritionists who are growing this movement of intuitive eating and health at every size, because they are really the folks I think genuinely concerned with health, not the um, athletic health concerns.
0: Intuitive eating is an approach to food that many nutritionists, social workers, and other specialists encourage. It involves listening to your body's messages. For example, learning to notice when you are hungry or full and eating accordingly. Intuitive eating rejects self-policing, guilt, and deprivation in favor of cultivating a positive, satisfying relationship with food and your body.
1: These writers taught me that I could move my body in ways that I loved. I didn't have to go to a gym, which was an incredibly toxic site for me. It had been a site of assault for me. That I could find joy in movement through dance or yoga or anything, really. They really helped me totally reframe my world and at the same time I was discovering feminism and so I was learning about how women are dieting and we're shrinking ourselves and how an intersectional approach is really so key to so many of our liberation movements. Non-fatness is seen as a sign of economic success and maintaining social status and upholding standards of beauty that are really rooted in whiteness so discovering this movement was really eye-opening and life-saving.
0: Could you give a definition of thin privilege?
1: Thin privilege doesn't mean that you have never experienced comments about your body, and it doesn't mean that you maybe don't like parts of your body, but it does mean that you can move through the world in a way that is not hindered by your body. Fat people may be denied healthcare, or adequate healthcare, in the same way that a thin person would. A fat body can't necessarily access a plain seat in the way that a thin body can. A fat body may be discriminated against in hiring in the way that a thin body is not. All of those points of access are thin privilege.
0: Can you run through some of the big myths about fat and body image that are part of the popular wisdom?
1: Sure. A lot of the myths around how to solve fatness are so prevalent and we hear them all the time like catchy diet culture lines like calories in calories out or eat less exercise more and those are just false. not everyone's body is built that way there are so many factors that affect body size and that can be access to nutritious food and genetics and lifestyle and mental health and chronic illness Another very prevalent narrative is diet talk as bonding. So office culture, when there's a birthday cake brought in and someone says, I couldn't possibly have a slice, go ahead, I'll be bad. Or, oh, I guess I can have a cheat day. All of this moralizing around food is just so prevalent and it's fully constructed. It's all a myth. We have made it up, which luckily means we can undo it and make up something else.
0: What's the main difference between body positive and fat liberation?
1: It's such an interesting question because so many movements get really distracted by policing language and it can divert from the issue. But I do think that the term body positive has really been co-opted. When you search for body positive on like Instagram or just anywhere, your searches will mostly yield thin or conventionally attractively curvy people who are loving themselves and they're running through the ocean all the while they're promoting diet teas that are actually diuretics and tied to that is this toxic positivity idea that everything is awesome all the time which doesn't actually allow ourselves a full array of emotions and experiences of our bodies so i think a helpful phrase is about being neutrality not just body positivity
0: like body positivity body neutrality is about accepting your body but without the added pressure of loving your body the philosophy advocates thinking less about what you look like and more about what you can do with your body. I'm
1: really excited about a world where aesthetics don't matter. We're all treated as people who all have different needs and we're not rating each other on a scale of 1 to 10. Like, oh, bro, you could never get her. She's a 9 and you're a 5. That's so gross. I hate it. <laughs> body neutrality is helpful, and fat liberation is helpful, because you don't have to love your body. You don't have to feel positive about your body all the time. Certainly a way in to the movement for folks can be through bodies and aesthetics and fashion. And self-love can be radical and powerful in a world that hates your body, but there's so much more to the movement, which is why I like the phrase fat liberation. I'll just add one more thing about body positivity. Sometimes folks say to the fat liberation movement, why are you celebrating obesity or promoting obesity? I'm not promoting any way of being. I'm just loving my body (laughs) i'm just saying it's okay to be in the body that you're in and notice that we all have different needs and not make assumptions about each other's bodies and in a world of so much bodily negativity where we're surrounded by body hate and brutal comments and overt bullying body positivity this like self-celebration is really needed to counter the negativity to get to a place of neutrality so really this movement is about like just being in your body and noticing that it's your home and it needs fuel and it likes to move and it houses your brain and your heart so you know take care of it for those
0: reasons not because you hate yourself it's almost like body positivity can act like a balancing of the scales that's probably yeah, a poor unnecessary yeah. uh, metaphor there that I didn't mean to put in there <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny
1: <laughs> no no I, I truly think so I think body positivity that's actually positive that's like hey, we're all celebrating
0: our bodies is great. I wanted to talk about the word fat because I think it's a word that a lot of people shy away from using. They see it as an insult or they just rather would use a euphemism. It's a word that you use and you've used it to describe yourself. Can you talk a bit about that? And can anybody use the word or is it only for people describing themselves? What do you think about it?
1: Yeah, so I think this is such an interesting question because... The things we call ourselves in any sphere is really a personal choice. I'm not here to say that fat people must call themselves fat or that no one can call another person fat. But I'm interested in why we have the social contract that fat is a bad word. I have reclaimed it to describe myself because... I am fat, it's just a descriptor. I align myself with the fat liberation movement, so it makes sense to call myself fat. It's almost as if I've reclaimed the word that was once a slur in the same way that the movement has reclaimed queer. And so I have also adopted the word queer to describe my sexuality. So I think it's certainly possible to use the word fat as a descriptor that is neutral and value judgmentless. And we still live in a world where calling someone fat is an insult. It's still a word that holds power In the long run, I'm interested in removing this power and focusing on other things, like who cares what size your body is, but I know that it can still be hurtful to call someone fat. So I would leave it up to an individual to describe how they see their body and what they feel is appropriate to call it.
0: Let's talk about health, because as you say, people seem to focus a lot on this issue of health. And the main thing they focus on is the idea that fat and health are completely connected and that we should really discourage fat because it's an indication of poor health so can you talk a bit about fat and health and the relationship between health and discrimination
1: people seem to really care about fat people's health which is interesting right because we don't check in on our thin friends and say like hey did you get enough sleep last night or say to your parent hey are you drinking enough water but we do say to our fat friends and family I just really care about you. Have you considered going on a diet? First of all, there's that double standard, which I just want to name. But there is this ongoing conflation of fatness and ill health. And it just simply doesn't stand. It's bad science. It's illogical. These studies come out that say, ah, oh, fat people are this percentage more likely to die of heart disease. People interpret that study and read that correlation means causation. And it may be the case that fat people have a higher degree of heart disease. But let's look at what that's about. Is it the fat that's causing that heart disease? Or is it something about the medical system that discriminates against fat people? People really like to fling stats at fat liberationists without a true medical understanding. And we're so steeped in this fat-hating culture that it's really easy to draw the lines between causation and correlation, instead of really looking at the multiple factors that go into any person's ill health, regardless of size. For instance, a fat person and a thin person could have exactly the same lifestyle, but only one is criticised. If a fat person is working out, they are the subject of derision or laughter even, or often misplaced praise or unsolicited advice. A friend of mine tells a story of how she was running, she's a fat woman, and someone stopped her mid-jog to say, don't stop running, keep it up which was doubly ironic because she literally stopped her to say, don't stop. And it's really none of your business. No thin person has ever stopped while running to say, keep it up. I'm much more interested in changing these understandings, especially because the ideas of fat as unhealthy have changed over time. In the 19th century and early 20th century, doctors were actually afraid that women were too thin. There were advice columns around weight gain and how to have a better diet to put on weight. And in America, at least, this was because of the building of a racialized identity, building whiteness amidst an immigration influx. So there was a lot of anxiety around fertility of white women, and you were less likely to have babies if you were thin. So there were worries about this diminishing white race. Women needed to learn how to scientifically manage their bodies so that they could position themselves specifically in opposition to a savage or bigger squatter sexualized black women. So we see that black bodies are really sites of fear and anxiety and degradation under white supremacist societies and out of this comes diet culture and fat behavior. So really all of these ideas that we have around fatness and health are steeped in racism and eugenics because they both degrade black people and discipline white people at the time. And out of these ideas came this concept of BMI, which is simply not a sound medical tool.
0: BMI or body mass index is a measure that uses your height and weight to determine if you are within a healthy weight range. According to the NHS website it can be a useful indication of whether you are overweight or obese but people who are very muscular can also have a high BMI. The website also notes that ethnicity can have a role, For example, people of Asian origin may have a higher risk of health problems at so-called healthy BMI levels.
1: It was created by insurance companies based on randomised assessment of risk. And the brackets of who is considered fat or unhealthy have changed over time. They're widening the brackets because of insurance policies. So even assessments of health are made up and flawed and contribute to fat phobia instead of actually caring about health. And if we really cared about fat people's health, we wouldn't bully fat people. The mental health side effects of being told constantly that you're not a good enough contributor to society or that you're ugly or that you're unwanted are huge. If we really cared about fat people's health, we would stop their fears of going to a doctor. Most people can barely access affordable health care in the first place, certainly in America and also in South Africa. But if you have a fear of going to a doctor because a doctor's gonna tell you, oh, you have a broken arm and you consider losing weight. The final point I'll add on this health topic is that if diets worked, we would all be thin. Every fat person I know, including myself, has tried multiple diets. And we know that kids go on diets imposed by parents or schools or themselves as early as eight years old. And diets are designed to have short-term success and individualized blame so that when they fail, people can come back, which is why the diet industry is a $7 billion industry. So I really challenge folks who claim that fatness is unhealthy to really look internally and ask themselves truly where those thoughts are coming from. Are they really based in health? Or are they based in fatphobia rather than racism, eugenics, and bias?
0: What is your opinion and what do you think the fat liberation movement perspective is on fat women who are trying to lose weight? Is that something that you think could be a legitimate, healthy decision for someone? It
1: feels like an incredibly complicated question to me because my decision is, no, I would never staple my stomach or have liposuction or any of those things, they seem barbaric to me. And I imagine many folks in the fat liberation movement would agree with that. But also, I can't tell someone what to do with their body. I can only say, I hope that this is the most freeing choice for you. And I wonder how our choices are constrained by the societies we live in. This applies across the board to conversations about feminism and agency and wearing makeup. If someone wants to do what they want to do to their body, that's their choice. And I would really interrogate that choice and find out why you're making it.
0: Do you think that there might be things that might be weight-related that a doctor might give you advice about that could be accurate and useful, but there's a need to counteract the excess of weight-related advice that doctors are giving or discrimination that's coming from doctors?
1: I'll say that this discrimination is so widespread that it results in very real harm women all over the world and folks who can get pregnant all over the world describe how they go to a doctor to describe a certain type of pain that they're having during pregnancy and the doctor will ignore it and just encourage weight loss and the stories of people who lose their children because of ill-advised medical advice, because that advice is focused on fatness, is heartbreaking. The fatphobia in the medical world is so rampant and so harmful. That is like the top line for me. If I'm going to a practitioner to look at something in my body, I want a holistic approach. I want them to look at all factors of me. One factor of my body is its fatness. Certainly, I don't think a doctor should ignore someone's fat if that's relevant to the illness or to whatever pain they're having but too often it's placed at the forefront and real symptoms other real issues are ignored So if i go see a doctor and i have a chronic lower back pain issue and the doctor has in the past said to me you know here are the things that you can do you can go to physiotherapy you can look into spine surgery you can make sure you exercise a little more and you can lose weight and i said oh what does the weight have to do with it? And they said, well, you know, a little extra weight on the body can strain your lower back. And I said, okay, that's helpful. But so many other people who are various sizes also have ruptured discs. And I'm interested in the advice that you give to them because I'm going to do the things that they recommend. But I'm not going to spend time stressing about how many calories I put in my body because that is worse for my mental and overall health. I do think you have to look at the body holistically and try part of the body. But until we remove fat as the thing that doctors look at, I'm not really interested in fact-related advice. I have one more example to share. I was looking into donating my eggs a few years ago. Basically, I had a stellar application and I was rejected because my BMI is too high. But when I asked the agency why that was relevant, they said, oh, it's that the doctor wouldn't be able to get to your ovaries because there's too much fat in the way. That is pure nonsense find a better doctor who knows how bodies work. So it's just so pervasive in so many spheres of medicine. And I really look forward to the day where our health is not guided by misguided bias.
0: Many people would agree, I think, that fad diets are bad. But they buy into this more general idea of wellness and lifestyle as a tool for weight loss and general health. The conventional wisdom is that the latter is medically sound. It's something that you can maintain long term but that the former is something to be avoided. But are they really different?
1: This is such a fascinating trend to me because capitalism is wily. It knows how to take something harmful and market it as healthy. The marketers are smart. They know that people don't want the words like weight loss and bad diet anymore. They have shifted their language to be much more about the and health and lifestyle. You can see this in how Weight Watchers, the diet, has rebranded itself as WW to be less about weight loss and much more about, I think, their new slogan wellness that works. But they still have the same system of allocating food points and obsessively tracking how much you've eaten every day and denying your body the nourishment it needs and weighing yourself. So I really don't see a difference. I also want to just highlight who can have access to the so-called healthy lifestyle If you're working a minimum wage job and you live in a food desert where you have lost access to fast food, but not a grocery store, or you can't afford a gym membership or there aren't any outdoor exercise spaces, of course these factors are going to influence how your body is in the world. And it may result in fatness because of the system of racism on which America is built. Most of the folks working these minimum wage jobs or living in food deserts are BIPOC folks.
0: For those who don't know, the term BIPOC is an acronym which stands for Black, Indigenous and People of Colour. The term has been around in the US and Canada for a number of years, but it grew in use during the George Floyd protests earlier this year.
1: And so, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement intersects with Phobia and dismantling racism and social go hand in hand.
0: If you had a magic wand you could change society overnight, what would you be interested in changing?
1: Wow, I love this question. You get to really imagine a great world. Overall, I would love to just divorce the idea of size and health being interwoven. I'm also interested in the legal sphere and how we can avoid discriminating against people because of their size. We have seen that fat women are less likely to be hired or promoted, and that when fat women are hired, they earn on average between $10,000 and $20,000 less than their thin colleagues. And if you factor in a feminist lens, this worsens the wage gap that already exists, which hovers around 80% for white women when compared to men's salaries, 66% for black women, and 58% for Latinx women, and that's just in the States. So I'm really interested in fixing the hiring disparities and the wage disparities that exist due to fat phobia. I'm really interested in size accommodations being made in public transit. You know, if 30% of Americans are overweight, we don't need to shift the bodies, we need to shift the design of public spaces and make sure that everything is accessible to everyone. I'm also interested in our interpersonal relationships, just how we talk to each other. I'm interested in the media representation change so that we're not constantly laughing at fat bodies. We can see fat bodies represented on screen, living fulfilled lives. Plus size models still do often adhere to those conventional standards. We've seen a co-opting of the small fat as representative of all fat bodies when it's absolutely not. So I'm really interested in seeing much more representation of different kinds of fat bodies. People with large bellies and square butts and double chins. Real fat people, not just airbrushed fat people. And also interested to see fashion companies cater to a much broader range of bodies. I am somewhat lucky in that I'm on the end of the fact spectrum where I can still find clothes in some mainstream stores, but many stores do not carry my size. A lot of fat folks have to shop exclusively online and they have very little option for cute, exciting, self-expressive designs.
0: Why do you think that these companies don't cater to bigger people when it's a big proportion of the population they can potentially make money off?
1: I think that a lot of brands maybe have a certain image of themselves. Like we only cater to stylish, fashionable people and they just happen to be thin. So sorry, Fatty, it's not for you. You know, I think there's some of that in some of the brands, but also I think a lot of brands just aren't aware of it. If for the hiring stats that I've already mentioned, it's not fat people in the room in fashion industries or in marketing industries or in decision-making power, then yeah, thin people are going to dictate the way the industries unfold and that will be exclusive.
0: So if you had to stereotype the critics of this movement, how would you portray them?
1: I don't think that anyone who has internalized fatphobia thinks of themselves as a bully. But claiming to know about a fat person's life and health just by looking at them is actually inaccurate and it's just this fatphobia manifesting. I ask of the critics, what is this really about? Is it our own fear of ugliness and not belonging? I really think it's much more about our social fears. And we have this convenient mask of health to hide behind when really it's much more about fear.
0: This is mainly for women listening who are not fat or who are within the so-called healthy BMI. What is the role that they can play in all of this? Is is this a movement that can help these women or is it connected? What do you think?
1: I think all people benefit from a fat-inclusive society if we're free of shame and hatred, you know, no one loses. I certainly think there's room for certain allies in the fat liberation movement, especially to stand up for your friend who has just had a stranger make a comment about their body. Not engage in diet talk in your office so that your fat colleague knows that you stand by them and shut it down when it happens. So I really invite women and people of all genders to ask themselves why they're dieting. What would happen if they didn't diet? What would happen if you focused your energies on other things? There's so much that the world has to offer. We don't need to stress about food and our bodies and diet, because all of our bodies
0: belong. I really enjoyed speaking to Jackie. I think that most people who see themselves as socially liberal would agree that institutionalized discrimination is unacceptable and the amount of psychological strife she experienced about her own body seems like a whole lot of unnecessary pain. Our disgust with fat on an aesthetic level seems petty, cruel, and arbitrary, and even if you don't buy the idea that fat and health are not as closely related as the popular wisdom suggests, there is a discrepancy between how much focus we place on the health of fat people and our attitude towards people who are actively negligent with their health, in terms of excess drinking or high levels of stress, for example. And I'm not sure that anyone with poor health should be the subject of judgment and shame. Nevertheless, I still wasn't sure how to reconcile Jackie's approach with the problem of the obesity epidemic. How can we accept fatness and stop focusing on the health of fat people when obesity kills 30,000 people a year in the UK and 2.8 million a year in the US? In South Africa, the Health Systems Trust warns that more people now die from obesity than poverty-related causes. So I spoke to someone who is sceptical about the fat liberation movement.
2: My name is Lizzie. I'm based in London. I'm a freelance journalist mainly covering relationships, women's rights and health. I also do some work in communications as well, again, in the health sphere.
0: I'm always interested to ask my guests about the different opinions that they have because I'm interested in how different sets of beliefs fit together. So do you mind telling me some of your kind of broader beliefs?
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So definitely left-leaning. I'm not especially religious in terms of sort of food. I'm trying to do things quite ethically. I'm not a vegan. but Also, I steer clear of, you know, like processed meats and all of that kind of food, mainly because I just don't think it's very ethical or particularly healthy. My mum's a nurse. My dad's a professor of material science. So I've kind of grown up with a concrete understanding of science. And so I guess that has influenced my beliefs and upbringing as well.
0: So the reason that I got in touch with you is because I read an article you wrote titled It's Not Fine to be Fat, and that was quite controversial. There's a lot of responses to that on Twitter and other articles and so on. So for those who haven't read it, what did you mean by the title It's Not Fine to be Fat? If you'd like to read the article, I have put a link to it in the episode description. Otherwise, just Google the title. It's available on the Guardian website. And Lizzie's surname is spelled C E R N I K.
2: Well, I actually didn't choose the title. They tend to choose more inflammatory titles, I guess, to kind of get people reading. So the journalist isn't actually responsible for that. But the sort of message behind it, I personally think that overall body positivity has been quite a good thing. And it's helped many people accept things that they would have previously seen as imperfections. But what I really can't agree with are the people who try to deny the link between health and obesity. So for me, you can feel as comfortable as you like in your own skin, but obesity does hugely raise the risk of certain diseases and conditions. And I don't think denying that is bringing anybody any help. The numbers of people who are struggling with obesity problems have snowballed in recent years. Obesity costs the NHS £6 a year. And as a nation, our relationship with food has massively changed. I personally feel like a lot of people are in denial about it. The issue has perhaps become even more obvious during the covid era because a lot of the issues and illnesses that people spoke of before that were relating to obesity like restaurant joints diabetes people saw those as quite far in the future a long way off and perhaps it wouldn't affect them and all that kind of stuff covid is here and it's reared its ugly head and it said here we are I am a huge threat to people who have obesity. And I think it's probably brought it into light for a lot of people. I know there's been a push recently from the government to say we need to deal with this. I don't necessarily think they're dealing with it in the right way, but I do think that there needs to be more provision put in place now. And I believe that it is preventable. And so to that end, I don't think it's acceptable for us as a society to just say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not that unhealthy anyway. It's fine. It's a good thing. And I think people are probably waking up to that idea that, yes, we do need to tackle this. We do need to look at this in a new way and make changes for the better that will benefit people's health and mental well-being as well.
0: Do you mind talking a bit about your own experiences in terms of your relationship
2: to body image? Have you ever been fat yourself? Uh, no, opposite one way around in school, I was bullied for being very skinny, uh, very flat-chested, very underdeveloped when I was at school. I don't equate that to people who are being bullied for being overweight, though, and I imagine it's much worse to experience that. I'm now in my 30s. I do boot camps and try and maintain a healthy weight. If I overeat, then I do put on weight now, and I then try and stop overeating <laughs> so that I can get back to a healthy weight again for me.
0: Okay. And is that something that you feel you have quite a healthy mental relationship to, or is it something that makes you unhappy if you do put on a bit of weight?
2: Uh, no, I mean, it's not something I overly think about. I just think, okay, well, I probably need to lose a couple of pounds now. I can probably cut out, you know, if I was having a biscuit or whatever, or if I was treating myself to a bag of crisps on a Friday night, I would just think, well, I'll cut that out for a couple of weeks or up my exercise regimes or whatever. I would say I have an overall relatively healthy relationship with my body weight.
0: What, in your opinion, is wrong with the Fat Pride movement?
2: It's interesting. A lot of people who support that movement are considered very left-wing. If you associated with some of the more right-wing movements, like the anti-vaxxers, for example, they'd kind of argue science, science, science. And yet for this, they have a sort of blind spot about it. I don't think anyone should ever be bullied for their weight. But I think we need to disassociate that personal feeling from health because I don't think people should be made to feel ashamed but I do think more support is needed so for example if you had somebody with alcoholism or addiction or other unhealthy behaviors you wouldn't celebrate it you'd want to support somebody in getting better but you wouldn't say you're fabulous the way you are it's brilliant don't ever get better carry on as you are And we know that's, you know, that's incredibly difficult to manage. It's incredibly difficult to treat. And they do become part of a person's psyche in the way that weight would. So, yeah, I just find it a bit ironic that some of these people who are in the fat bribe movement are generally not science deniers. But then there's this blind spot, I guess.
0: But scientific facts don't lie. Okay, so some of the claims that people in the movement make about how science says that You can be healthy at any weight or that there's not such a strong link between fat and health. Would you say that that's quite dubious science? or
2: Yeah, very dubious. And I actually think it's damaging to give people those messages because in any health situation, people will gravitate towards the health beliefs that make them feel most comfortable. You know, somebody might have COVID and they've got a fever and they don't want to have COVID. So they'll convince themselves it's something else and they won't get tested. People have very set beliefs about their health. It might be the other way around that they're anorexic, but they think they're fine. They think they're fat. Or whatever else it is. I think it's irresponsible to deny science. Do you have any
0: stereotypes about the sort of people who are part of the Fat Pride movement?
2: How do you perceive them and what do you think motivates them? I would imagine, you know, it's probably from being bullied in the past, trying to accept themselves. It comes from a healthy place and that's great until you get to a point where you're discouraging self improvement. So, messages like 99% of diets fail are quite damaging because yeah of course crash dieting fails but we don't want people to crash diet we need to support people in their relationship with food and exercise it's easier for some people to lose weight than others and we're all built in different shapes but obesity has skyrocketed thanks to all these convenience foods and the fact that we eat more and we move less and if you compare these rates to 50 years ago it's greatly increased so I don't know how anyone can argue that it's natural to be obese I find it quite strange that would even exist as a health belief and there's a lot of anecdotal data that gets shared amongst the fat pride movement as well you know the comments that you mentioned earlier about i'm fat and healthy etc and that might be true and it might be true that a smoker lives to be 99 but we know scientifically that smoking overall isn't healthier and leads to poorer health outcomes that's just a fact we know so Yeah, I would say there's those two things really is the one is denial of science. And the other is the initially coming from a healthy and happy place or wanting to be promoting happiness and health for people. But maybe becoming too bogged down in their own mental health issues about how they feel about their own weight to actually really understand the issues behind it and why it might be damaging. In the article, you also spoke about some
0: of the positive outcomes of the body positive movement. So do you think there's more change to be done in the way that the media portrays bodies? And what more do you
2: think the body positive movement should be doing? I think it would be good if we talked about bodies less. I think there's far too much focus on what we look like. Perhaps we should be aiming for body neutrality and health rather than activities. All the other things that our bodies allow us to do, such as reading, and sport and writing and art, because that's all more important than what we look like. A body is just a body, but to live a long, happy life, we should be trying to nourish it well, keep it fit and healthy as much as you can, obviously, because we don't have control over every aspect of it even Instagram posts that mean well, where there's people posing, you know, pictures in their underwear and so on. For me, I don't find this helpful in any way, even if someone's got a different body shape or they don't look like a model or whatever. It doesn't make me feel more positive. I just think, why are we obsessing about bodies all the time? Maybe if we talked about other stuff. And there's also a link with misogyny as well, because it's far more women speaking about bodies constantly. And there's so many other wonderful things that, women do that said i would like to see a greater representation of different races and cultures and disabilities but again not in a token way and not just because of those reasons let's celebrate what amazing things people are doing with their mind and bodies whatever they look like and whatever disabilities they have
0: I think it would be a pretty big change to see less said and represented about bodies I mean it's pretty much the whole fashion industry it's magazines it's everything to do with fitness courses that are designed to make your thighs look different or your bum look different it would be a pretty radical change if we did see bodies more
2: in terms of what they can do yeah it would be a radical change that for me would be incredible if we could do that it leads on to that relationship as well between people's weight and feeling it's personal to them whereas it then becomes another health issue you know whereas at the moment because we see so many pictures of bodies and so many pictures of what people look like all the time it's understandable that young people are gonna obsess about those issues as opposed to things that they can do.
0: So I think that the attitude that we have towards fat people is different from how we feel about people who binge drink or get sunburned on their holidays or make other kinds of dangerous health choices. Do you think it's possible to separate the health question from the appearance question when we do speak about the obesity epidemic?
2: Yeah, I think it is because I think we need to separate our behaviors. So, for example, if I was a manager screaming at all my employees every day, it isn't great for my health and well-being. It's not great for theirs, but it's about the behavior rather than the actual individual person. I think we need a more holistic approach that's got support and health across the board rather than just focusing on you're too fat. You need to lose weight. So it could be things like provide like council run exercise classes that cater to people who perhaps haven't really done any exercise before you know they don't feel overwhelmed then going to a gym or something where there's loads of skinny people that they feel they need to emulate because they're with other people who are similar to them experienced similar challenges to them perhaps and it's more supportive so i think it's about taking a holistic approach do you think it's really possible to tell people that there's something wrong with their body without shaming them again it just comes back to that separation of behaviors and the individual because it's not about the person themselves it's about their relationship with their mind and body and their relationship with food and exercise so it's just about separating those behaviors and coming up with new ways to actually engage people with health and fitness we need to go back to the school level really and thinking about teaching people to cook teaching people to what foods nourish their body how to make them taste good together even things like you know so many people associate healthy food with bland and boring because they think oh well you know, it's gonna be disgusting. And then we've also got the issues of poverty. It comes down to things like better housing, ensuring that people have access to housing with cookers that work and having enough money to feed themselves on. So there's simple things like that that are more policy based. If you're poor and you're living on a terrible wage who can blame someone for grabbing some chicken nuggets instead of a bag of lentils because you know lentils are hardly appetizing but if we're able to get in early and educate people on being able to make food taste nice that is also healthy then I think we can really improve the way that we handle the obesity crisis there's also an argument around junk food and convenience food and making that less readily available as well It's all about behaviours. If we had to make donuts from scratch, who's going to bother 99% of the time? But it's because everything is so easily available that those behaviours become ingrained in us. And then there's also sort of coaching programmes, treating obesity in severe cases as an addiction, like an addiction to food, offering people the kind of psychological support they might need. I don't think there's one easy, fast route to it. And I think it will be dependent from person to person. So for me, it's much more about psychology and habits rather than the individual person themselves.
0: One other question I have, having had a look at some of the responses to the article, you mentioned in it that you're against bullying and you don't think it's a good idea to be punishing people in society for the way that they look. What would you say to
2: someone who would accuse your article of being bullying? I wouldn't say it is. If you break down the actual points that are in there, it's based on scientific fact. It's based on research and it's based on issues of me not agreeing. If you go up to somebody in the street and you start abusing them to their face and saying why are you fat? why do you look like this? what's wrong with you? you know, you make horrible comments towards them or if you don't hire them for a job because of the way they look, then yes, because it's bullying. But I wouldn't really say an article. I think People can perceive it as that because I think there's probably an element of them knowing the truth deep down and the truth hurts, if I'm honest. It's just a fact of life. If you hear something that you can relate back to yourself, you might feel ashamed and you might feel angry, but it doesn't change the narrative. I'm not going to go up to say to somebody and be rude to anybody about it. But if somebody said to me, I'm thinking about losing weight, do you think this would be a good thing? And they were obese. I would say, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Good for you. I think that's a brilliant choice to make. If people are comfortable in their bodies and they're overweight, then that's their choice to do so. It's a personal choice. I don't have to think that that's a good thing just because they do. That's their own life and that's their own choice to make but you can't be healthy and obese. They don't go hand in hand. If you, for example, choose to smoke or if you choose to go on sunbeds every day, it's a free country and you can do as you please, but you can't then also say, you know, I've got incredibly healthy skin or incredibly healthy lungs. I'm doing no damage to myself whatsoever because that's not true. (laughs) Having spoken to
0: both Jackie and Lizzie, I realized that, at least from a more left-leaning perspective, health is the fulcrum of the problem. Whether aesthetic preferences, sexism and racism underpin the anti-fat ideology, as Jackie claims, or not, health is the sticking point. So I decided to bring in a medical expert.
3: I'm Arya Sharma, I'm professor of medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. I'm also the founder and scientific director of Obesity Canada, which is Canada's health charity for people living with obesity.
0: Can you start off by giving a definition of obesity?
3: To most people, when you hear the word of obesity, you're thinking of people who are very large, who probably have a lot of health problems, and who should probably be trying to lose weight. Now, in a medical context, for a long time, obesity has been defined based on body mass index, which is a number you can calculate just based on height and weight. And so really, it's a measure of size. Now, what we've known for quite some time and what I've been a very strong advocate for is this notion that size is not really a good measure of health, because we do know that people come in all shapes and sizes and that it is pretty possible to be quite healthy across a wide range of weights and sizes. So this idea that there is a certain number that people have to be in terms of their size or you know, when stepping on a scale And that that somehow equates to their health is actually a notion that makes no medical sense. I mean, it's very easy in clinical practice to see two people who have the exact identical body mass index number. One of them could have all kinds of health problems like diabetes or sleep apnea or arthritis. These are all conditions that we know can be worsened by weight gain and tend to get better when people lose weight. But then you might have another person who has the exact same body mass index and that person has none of those problems. And so saying that both of them have obesity and saying that both of them need to be losing weight just makes no medical sense whatsoever. So simply having a lot of body fat does not mean that you're unhealthy, does not mean that you're sick, does not mean you have a disease, does not mean that you probably have to lose weight. If they have a lot of body fat that's not impairing their health, they're happy as they are, their blood pressure is fine, they don't have joint problems, Then, according to this definition, they do not actually have obesity. They just happen to be large people living in large bodies. Leave them alone. But that's different if you have obesity. So if your body fat is actually affecting your health or your well-being, that's when you need to go out and seek professional help. So we have to be very clear when we use the term obesity, at least in the medical context, that we are actually talking about people who are ill. And so that's something that we really have to change in the literature. We have to change it in thinking about obesity because that's really what obesity ultimately is about. It's a medical condition that is caused by the presence of excess body fat.
0: Can you talk a bit about some of the misconceptions about the causes of obesity?
3: When we think about what causes and drives obesity, we have to start with the biology. The underlying biology of obesity is highly genetic. You know, when you look at family photographs and you've got parents, you've got the grandparents, and you can very clearly often see how obesity runs through families. And there's a lot of science showing that body shape, body size, body fat, the location of body fat is very tightly genetically regulated. And that there are some people for whom gaining weight is really, really easy. There are In contrast, people who find it extremely difficult to gain weight. You know, we all know the skinny person who basically lives off a junk food diet, never gets off the couch, and is thin as a rail. On the other hand, we've got people who are really careful about what they eat. They have all the knowledge. They do the exercise. And yet, they just seem to be packing on the pounds year after year. This has been shown and documented in scientific studies where you've actually taken people you've locked them up in a metabolic ward and you've given them the same amount of calories, you've made them do the exact same amount of activity. And what you see is a wide range of body weights. There are some people who after six weeks will have gained two pounds, and there are some people who after six weeks will have gained 12 pounds on exactly the same diet, on exactly the same amount of physical activity. So we know that there are huge differences amongst people in terms of their susceptibility to weight gain. Now, unfortunately, what we also know is that when you look at the population as a whole, there are far more people who find it easier to gain weight than the kind of people who are what you could call weight resistant. And so when you take this entire population and you expose it to the kind of environment that we live in now, where there's an abundance of food, most people have desk jobs, you spend a lot of time in front of the computers, there's high stress levels, people are not sleeping properly. When you take all of those things together, then of course the people who are most genetically susceptible to weight gain are going to have the biggest problems. And that's exactly what we see at a population level. So as our living conditions move towards a more and more obesogenic environment, more and more people in the population end up gaining weight. But it starts with their genetics. There's a lot of people who live in this environment who don't gain weight. That's not because these are good people or they're smart or they're working harder than anyone else. No, they just happen to be perhaps, in today's context, the lucky ones who just don't have the genes that allowed them to gain weight so easily. And so we have to understand the underlying biology that drives this epidemic. And of course, it is the environment that then kind of you know triggers the whole thing. But it's not that people who live in larger bodies are really living much unhealthier lives than the people who happen to be living in thin bodies. And there's a lot of research that actually shows that.
0: And what are some of the misconceptions about weight loss and how easy or difficult it is to lose weight?
3: Well, I think the biggest... Misconception about weight loss is that this is something that you can do and anybody can do and will be successful in the long term. And I think a lot of the confusion comes because short term weight loss is something that's pretty easy to do and most people have done it. But the way that I explain this to my patients is I say, you know, bodies like to gain weight, but they don't like to lose it. So the problem is that people gain weight for all kinds of reasons. And there's a lot of different reasons why somebody might gain weight, starting from the genetics that we've just talked about. The problem you're up against is that when you try to lose weight, your body is going to resist weight loss. And it does so using a whole bag of, if you want, biological tricks that are going to make it difficult for people to lose weight in the long term. And essentially, these mechanisms work against you. Now, the way bodies work is that they tend to defend their body weight, usually around the highest weight that you've reached. So let's say, you know, you've been in a car accident, you've had some depression following that, you have some chronic pain, you're not sleeping properly, and you gain 50 pounds. So you end up, say, you're now 250 pounds. Now your body is going to try to defend those 250 pounds. So now let's say you recover from all of this and you start going on a diet or you start an exercise program and you're trying to lose the weight. Well, and as you start losing the weight, your body is going to start responding. And there's a very powerful biological response that is actually going to limit the amount of weight you can lose, which is what most people will experience, the so-called weight loss plateau. So, you know, the first couple of weeks into your diet, things are going great, you're losing weight. And then the rate of weight slows down Uh, You're still following your diet. You're still doing the exercise, but you're no longer gaining weight. That is really your body resisting weight loss. So it's basically your body saying enough is enough. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to lose any more weight. That's the weight loss plateau. But what it also does is it kind of sets you up for weight regain. And what happens then is the minute you start increasing your food intake because now you're relaxing your diet or you're cutting down on your exercise program, that weight is going to start coming back and it comes back very, very quickly. And it's going to take you right back to the 250 pounds where you started. And for most people, for the vast majority of people, and in fact, I would say almost for all people, it's only a matter of time. When you hear about the people who claim that they have successfully conquered obesity because they lost 100 pounds you know, 10 years ago and they've been keeping it off, so they've cured their obesity, but you actually look at what they're doing to keep the weight off, the more weight they've lost and the more they're trying to keep off, the more this becomes almost a full-time job. So if you look at the restricted diets that they're on, the amount of physical activity they do, it's a daily struggle for them to keep off the 100 pounds. And I can tell you that every single one of those people, if anything happens in their life that makes them come off their diet, come off their exercise program, they will have absolutely no problem putting the 100 pounds right back on. So that is the biology that you're up against. And that is the real reason why virtually all of the weight loss programs that are out there, almost none of them work uh, in the long term. In the short term, they all work because there's a lot of ways you can lose weight, but there are very, very few ways to actually keep the weight off because your biology is going to fight you. And so when you listen to a lot of the people who says, you know what, I'm not even going to bother anymore because every time I lose weight, I end up Putting the weight back on. And in fact, sometimes I, I gain even more weight than I lost in the first place. So I'm done with losing weight. I'm just going to stay the way I am and I'm going to try to be as happy as I am. And please do not talk to me about weight loss. I totally understand that because that is a normal response to having failed and failed and failed and failed and failed, and failed over and over again. The challenge we have in obesity management is how do we get people to lose weight and keep it off in the long term? And what we've learned is that that is extremely hard to do if you are not also changing the underlying biology.
0: So what would be a possible solution? And are there some cases where it's better to just allow people to remain at the weight that they're at?
3: Well, it really depends on the kind of problem that people have. Sometimes people have medical problems because of their size, but these problems you know, might be easy to control through other means. So let's take somebody who has excess body weight, and that excess body weight is causing them to have high blood pressure. So they take a tablet every day that brings down their blood pressure. So for that person, if the blood pressure is well controlled, well, that might actually be the best solution. Now I can give you another example. It would be sleep apnea. Now, we all know that sleep apnea is tightly linked to weight gain, but for a lot of people, you know, they get a CPAP machine from their doctor and they use the CPAP machine every night and they don't mind using it and they're comfortable using it. You know, if that's the case, then that's a reasonable treatment, right? Unfortunately, there are a lot of medical conditions for which we don't have good medical solutions. And there sometimes weight loss is actually sometimes the only solution that we can offer. And that's when we really have to get serious about obesity treatment
0: what sort of treatments are available in that case?
3: You know, like in every chronic disease, uh, you know, and the reason that I call obesity chronic disease is because once you have obesity, as we've just discussed, there are no easy solutions. So you're going to be probably be stuck with a lot of that excess weight, or at least you'll be fighting that excess weight for pretty much for the rest of your life, you know, if you have to fight it, or if you choose to fight it. So how do you address that? Well, in all chronic diseases, One of the first things you do, of course, is you try to optimize lifestyle. Now, when I say lifestyle, I'm not just talking about try to eat healthy, you try to get physical activity, but you also have to work on things like your stress levels. Uh, You have to look at your coping strategies. You have to look at your mental health. You have to look at your sleep. So you have to look at everything that encompasses your lifestyle and see where can we make changes that are going to allow me to be as healthy as I can be. So that's where it starts. But when we start thinking about weight loss, especially if I'm talking about a lot of weight loss, I'm going to have to address the underlying biology. And that's where medical treatments come in. And if you take the most effective treatment there is bariatric surgery. Now, bariatric surgery is not making Mouse surgery. This is serious surgery. You have to think carefully about whether or not it's right for you. Most people who've had bariatric surgery will do a much better job of keeping weight off than people who have not had bariatric surgery who are trying to do this with diet and exercise alone. So why is it that people who've had surgery find it easier to keep the weight off, but it's because the surgery changes the biology. In fact, the surgery changes your metabolism. It changes your appetite. It changes a lot of things in how your body works, making it much more difficult for your body to defend its body weight and to set you up for weight regain. And the same goes now for medications. So now in the last couple of years, we've seen new medications come out for obesity that very specifically address some of those biological mechanisms that drive weight regain. And so when you're on these medications as long as you stay on them, those medications are going to make it much harder for your body to put the weight back on. And that's why your long-term success is going to be much better than if you're going to be trying this with willpower alone. All medical treatments, there's risks. They don't work for everybody. People respond differently. There's a cost to medical treatments. So you have to be very careful and say, you know, is the risk of the treatment less than the benefit that a patient can have from the treatment? And that's when you offer the treatment. And remember, when I say obesity, I'm not talking about large people. I'm not going to go off and take a sumo wrestler who's a high-performance athlete, healthier than you and me, and say, you know, this guy needs bariatric surgery. That's not at all what I'm saying because that person probably does not even have obesity based on the definition.
0: How common do you think it is in the academic or medical sphere for people to conflate being big and being obese and... How much of what you're talking about is kind of a dissenting opinion or a different approach to, to the obesity narrative?
3: Well, I think, you know, narratives change over time and we're just in the beginning of changing this. So, you know, if, it depends on the literature that you read. I've been talking about getting rid of BMI as a definition for obesity for the last 10 years now. The new Canadian obesity guidelines are probably the first guidelines that have actually made this distinction very clear. Now, you know, things, things don't change that quickly. So it's going to take a, quite a while even within the medical profession and even within the research profession, for people to understand that we need to be moving away from a body size definition of obesity and move to a medical definition of obesity. And that's going to happen because it's, it's just logical. It makes sense. It's going to take probably even longer before the general public understands the difference. It's going to take perhaps even longer before policymakers and people who make decisions around access to care, etc., change their opinions about this. Also, because even in the medical profession, we have not really been teaching a lot about obesity in medical school, and that also has to change. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of really changing this whole narrative around what obesity is and who should be treated and who should be left alone. There's a lot of other things that are being addressed, the weight bias, the stigma, the discrimination a lot of other things that are being discussed and they're all important in terms of thinking about obesity as a chronic disease. I think it will benefit a lot of people. It will benefit those people who are large and say, you know what, I'm fine, leave me alone. I don't have a disease. I'm just someone who's living in a large body.
0: What do you think about some of the more kind of prevention focused approaches to obesity, given that it's obviously incurable and difficult to treat? Do you think things like public education programs or changing the food environment are useful ideas?
3: Well, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we live in an environment where the food is crappy and that's not just for obesity, that's for everything. So on a public health level, we should be asking people to eat better, to be more physically active and to be more mindful and manage their stress and, you know, do all the things that people need to be doing in order to live healthier lives. Now, is that going to reduce obesity? I don't know. Will you end up with a more healthy population? Probably. But we know that these things are very, very difficult to do. And I can't think of any example of anywhere in the world where the changes have been so radical in terms of lifestyle or health promotion that we are actually starting to see obesity numbers go back down. So we think we know what we need to do, but either we haven't done it yet or we haven't done it properly or in the cases where it's been done, the results are not as quite dramatic as we've expected. So this is really hard. You know, I don't want to say that prevention is useless, of course it's not, but to me a lot of this stuff is not really obesity prevention, it's just, you know, promoting healthy lifestyles in the population, and I think that's what we should be doing, and that's what we should be doing more of.
0: If what Dr. Sharma argues is true, it's good news, because if the causes and solutions for excess weight are as complex and challenging as he describes, there's no good reason to blame or judge anyone for being big. And if health is possible at any size, thousands of people can stop torturing themselves with pointless and painful weight loss regimes. But it's also really bad news, because it means that those who want or need to lose weight have an extremely difficult road ahead. Of course, you can find plenty of literature that defines obesity by BMI, and health at any size is a controversial idea. But my three guests all agreed on a few things. First... Look after your body and mind, whatever that may mean. Second, no one should be bullied for their size. Third, there are a lot of problems with the structures of our society, including the accessibility of good food and health care. As always on Debatable, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But in closing, I want to reiterate something Jackie said about our bodies. Notice that it's your home, and it needs fuel and it likes to move, and it houses your brain and your heart. So take care of it for those reasons, not because you hate yourself. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Debatable on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you'd like to find out more about my three guests, details are in the episode description.